This week on Life and Faith. Across the country, there was really this sense of we can't let this go unpunished. This is not a time to reflect on American foreign policy in the world. This is the time to double down. They'd done the job. Local authorities had it on their hand. How do performing artists see the world? Because I'm nothing like a performing artist. This does seem to me like a very frightening situation. None of us are doctors and we're all doing fine. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Justine Toe. In recent weeks, we've all been stunned by terrible scenes from Afghanistan as the Taliban have retaken the country just as US forces pulled out of the region after 20 years. People have been desperate to leave. There's been suicide bombings at Kabul airport, fear that the Taliban will seek revenge on those who've worked with foreign troops, and a concern, and it's justified really, that such a troubled place will again descend into violence, tribal conflict and repression, especially of women and girls and ethnic and religious minorities. Yeah, and the timing of this feels so poignant, don't you think, Simon? Because yep. Afghanistan fell just three weeks out from the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. And, of course, Afghanistan had been a safe house for Osama bin Laden, the mastermind behind those attacks. And when the Taliban refused to hand him over, the country was bombed by the U.S. from October 2001, and they've been there ever since. Tonight, the United States of America makes the following demands on the Taliban. Deliver to United States authorities all the leaders of al-Qaeda who hide in your land. Close immediately and permanently every terrorist training camp in Afghanistan and hand over every terrorist and every person in their support structure to appropriate authorities. Give the United States full access to terrorist training camps so we can make sure they are no longer operating. These demands are not open to negotiation or discussion. That was then US President George W. Bush, and he was addressing a joint Congress on the 20th of September 2001. Right before he said, quote, hand over the terrorists or share in their fate. Yeah, so we'll return later to the current crisis in Afghanistan. But this week, we're thinking back to the 9-11 attacks, such an extraordinary event that has defined so much of our lives this century. The global order, military campaigns, but also more closer to home, the way we travel, fear and suspicion of Muslim people. And we've all got kind of memories of this. I remember, Justine, I was living in Vancouver at the time, uh, studying over there, and only about four, it might have been five weeks before that, my wife and I were in New York and we were on top of the World Trade Center. So that oh, sort of feels kind of the proximity of that, even that distance, felt pretty close, actually. Yeah. Well, I remember I was going to Italy and Greece with my two girlfriends on the 16th of September. Mm. And I remember that the airport, the lines to clear security took hours. It was incredible. And there was a real sort of buzz in the air and, and a fear, really. And I remember my mum saying to me very sternly as a 21-year-old, if there's a war, you come home. And it was like, yes, mum, I will. <laughs> but even on the night of uh, September 11 itself, or the night that we were experiencing, it was daytime, of course, in the US. I remember hearing from someone about this plane crashing into the World Trade Center and then just going downstairs and being glued to CNN for hours. 
And I think I remember watching the collision of the second plane in real time. You say that emergency vehicles are there, understandably so, but of course the major concern is human oh loss. I mean, do you know if there were many people in the building? Oh, another time? one just hit. Something else just hit. A very large plane just oh. flew directly over my building and there's been another collision. Can you see it? I yes. can yes. see it on this shot. Oh my. Something you, else has you just... You know what? We just saw like a plane circling the building. Who can forget the scenes of mayhem, the thick dust from the collapsed towers coating everything. There were also stories of heroism by New York firefighters and police and honestly gripping accounts of people with first-hand experiences of the day. Now, one of those people that I know, a friend of mine, Mark McLennan, at the time was a 21-year-old Australian tourist in New York. Here's Mark. Coming out of the metro, um, it's a beautiful day, not a cloud in the sky, but just as we got to the top of the stairs, um, it was pretty clear that, that something wasn't quite right. And as we sort of um, stood at the top of the stairs, turned to our left and, and could see through the buildings, just bellows of smoke coming out of a, um, what, what was the, the Trade Centre, basically. Yeah, so at that point, I guess you had absolutely no idea what was happening. So what did you do? You sort of did what was probably a natural thing to do, went to see what was going on. Yeah, I don't know if it was natural or, or youth stupidity. <laughs> or stupidity, but um, we were 21 at the time. I'd been away travelling all year, a um, bit of an adventurous spirit, so it was pretty much we proceeded to get as close to the action as we could um, whilst everyone seemed to be walking the opposite direction. Or more sensibly, yeah. Yeah, indeed, but um, I'm sure you, you may have been there before it came down, but the, the scale of the building is is something that you don't quite pick up when you're looking at the, the footage, because um, often the, the footage is above already sort of high towers, but, you know, the building's 400-plus metres in the air, and this seemed like a tiny little sort of fire in the middle of the building as opposed to the sort of significance of the impact that obviously had happened before we arrived. At the point you were at there, did you have any idea of what had happened? No idea at all. Just saw um, smoke coming out of the tower, but had no idea what was what had taken place only minutes earlier. And then people around you were fascinated, wondering what's going on, horrified. Yeah, I suppose at that point we're still, um, you know, I want to say two kilometres or one and a half kilometres from the tower where, the, where we came out of the station. So as I say, we proceeded to walk closer and closer and it wasn't until we got sort of within a, a block of the building where the police were cordoning it off that... There was sort of a bit of a crowd gathered at the base of the building and we started to have mixed conversations about what had happened, what was going on. So we started to pick up bits of information, but it was still very unclear. But I suppose the bottom line is something had gone into the tower and, yeah, it was pretty serious. Were you standing there when the second tower was hit? No. So uh, fortunately or unfortunately, we were, um, I don't know for sure, but uh, based on the timeline, I suspect we were under the towers on the metro when the second plane went in at yeah. the Trade Centre stop because um, from memory I think there's another two stops to get down to the bottom of Manhattan. So yeah. so when we came out of the, the, the subway, um, both planes had already entered the building. You were, though, there, Mark, when the building came down. Can you describe that moment? Yeah, um, as I say, we're probably at the base for about 10 minutes talking and as, you know, sort of instincts took over, I suppose. We were, you know, like most tourists taking photos and, and looking around and 
and before we knew it, I was literally, I didn't have to think. We were way too close um, given the size of the building. So I just turned and pretty much ran for my life. So it was, um, there was no thought involved. It was literally just felt like every, every person for themselves as far as trying to find shelter or run away from the, the destruction that was coming. The noise must have been unbelievable, was it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to recall specifics because it was such an instinct to respond. But, yeah, I mean, it was overwhelming, um, the noise and, and the darkness that came after it. Um, so I, I turned and ran what would have only been, I think, 10, 15 metres, and whether instinctively or not, there was a big construction skip on the road and I, I, I ducked in behind that to get shelter and um, felt the full force of the building come through the street. So obviously hitting the back of the, the construction skip and going past and then complete stillness and silence after that. How long did that go for? The whole period, I, I want to say, I don't know, in slow motion, but probably 10, 15 seconds, I think, you know, like it wasn't, it didn't feel like a long period of time. But yeah, yeah, probably 10, 15 seconds, I, I believe. So you were covered in dust, injured at all? I think your friend was moderately injured. Yeah, no, I was, I was very fortunate. I, uh, um, yeah, my friend took shelter in a basement of a building and um, cut his foot on the way through the building. I was, don't know if you recall, the, the landslide down in Threadbow at the time, so I had Stuart Diver's account of being stuck buried alive, um, which I didn't want to um, go down that path. So I took my chances on the street and, um, yeah, it was unscathed, obviously completely white um, from head to toe, covered in dust and debris, but unscathed. As you say, the scale of this is just so shocking. Mm. You must have looked up at the end of that and just seen sort of an emptiness. It must have been quite a surreal moment as it settled. Yeah, well, as I say, the, the thing that struck me the most was the silence um, because it was obviously New York's a busy, crowded, congested city and, and at this time there was fire engines, police sirens, so much noise and then obviously the debris, at the you know, the, the falling of the building was horrendous and, and noisy and then it was complete stillness. Uh, um, I couldn't see anything at all. I couldn't see my hand in front of my face because it was that black from all the dust and and debris and the only thing I could hear were fighter jets going over the city um that was the only thing that I could hear in the background which obviously then as I said there was mixed reports when we were standing in the crowd as to what had happened but you know sort of your mind races away as to what's going to happen next so um I couldn't actually see anything at all um for I want to say three or four minutes until you could start to make out shapes and buildings and, and things started to settle how long was it until you had any idea of what had taken place? Yeah, well, still it was probably not until we sort of got to the hospital, uh, which I want to say was probably half an hour to an hour after the event that we... This is with your friend being injured, right? Correct, yeah. So we, um, you know, as the dust settled, I proceeded to walk where I thought was away from the building, um, called my parents, let them know I was okay, being a good diligent son um, on the payphone, which managed to still work. Came across an artery of people that were sort of shepherding people out, out of the city and going across the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, that's when the second tower came down. And fortunately, I managed to just 
bump into my friend, would you believe, in this mob of people and um, his foot was bleeding quite bad so the police picked us up on the bridge and swept us away to the Brooklyn Hospital. Mark, as you look back on this, and you, you were really right there for a very defining moment mm. of our, all, our, all our lives um, this century. Have you been able to reflect on this uh, over the years? And if so, what's been the kind of personal impact of it, if anything? Yeah, I've had um, obviously 20 years, uh, I think about it occasionally. Um, I suppose on the flip side, I was a, a tourist coming in on the outside, didn't have any emotional connection from a friend or a, a location perspective. So in some, on one level, uh, I'm very thankful that I haven't been scarred or, or um, affected long-term by the impact of losing people that I knew or having an emotional connection to the place. So I think for me, obviously, it was a I was taking a year out of university to travel around the world, so it was a year of adventure and, and had so many different experiences that they sort of all mould into one. But I, I'm obviously very thankful that nothing happened to me or my friend, obviously, we were meant to be up there that day on the viewing platform, so it could have been a very different outcome. And that I haven't been sort of affected by it mentally or emotionally since then so I suppose very thankful but I'm very aware that it's as you say it's a day that changed the world. You're listening to Life and Faith and we're marking the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. David Smith is Associate Professor in American Politics and Foreign Policy at the U.S. Studies Centre and the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Sydney. We've had him on Life and Faith before, and this felt like the right time to call on him again. I asked David what impact that event had on him personally. It had a major impression on me personally. I was in third year uni and... It was like nothing that we had ever seen before. Mm. There really was this image of the United States as invincible. For the 10 years prior to that, it had seemed that the direction that the world was moving in was all the sort of direction that the US wanted it to move in, that it was becoming more democratic. Free markets were becoming more and more prevalent as the dominant form of economic organisation. And what happened on September 11th, 2001, was it really just kind of shattered all of that certainty, I felt. And it really did feel like the inauguration of a new world where the United States would be challenged in ways that nobody had anticipated. So that was really the kind of uh, impression that it left on me. I remember watching it at the time and thinking, the world is changing. Talk to me about the symbolic nature of the attacks. It's obviously more Mm. than symbolic. Yeah. Many, many people awfully killed. But they were attacks mounted at icons of sort of American political and military power. Yes. Economic power too. Yeah. And a kind of the American way of life. That's how it came to be seen, wasn't it? Yeah, it did come to be seen in that way. And certainly the people who committed those attacks – didn't really make distinctions between American economic, military, political and cultural power. They saw them as one big complex dominating the rest of the world. 
And I think that as a result of those attacks, that is kind of how Americans came to see it as well. You know, that an attack on those symbols of capitalism was an attack on freedom and an attack on the American way of life. And there was this real sense that not only can you not give up military victories like this, you can't give up symbolic victories like this either, that the United States would have to rebuild the tower. I mean, the towers weren't rebuilt, but there's an even bigger structure in their place today. And a very popular song at the time was Tom Petty's I Will Not Back Down. And there was a real sense, I think, even among very liberal Americans who might have questioned exactly what US foreign policy was doing, the reaction was really, no, we can't back down. This is a very American response. And it goes back to the presidency of Andrew Jackson, whose view on foreign policy was very much, you have to respond to every attack that is necessary for the credibility of the people. And what's often referred to as the Jacksonian tradition in foreign policy has very much been the kind of ideology of the American military. But I think across the country, there was really this Jacksonian sense of we can't let this go unpunished. And this is not a time to reflect hmm. on American foreign policy in the world. This is the time to double down. And it, it wasn't until a couple of years later, especially in the lead up to the Iraq war, that a lot more Americans really began to uh, to question what American foreign policy was doing. Now, nobody in America would say that the attacks were justified or would be sympathetic to them. But there did start to be reflection on What was US foreign policy actually doing that was encouraging people to take up arms against the United States around the world? Yes, and when you think about the response now, when we look back on it, it was framed as a sort of an assault on freedom, and so anyone who's interested in that will want to respond Mm. in in a kind of formidable way. And yet we've seen how terribly disastrous that was in 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 kind of unanticipated ways is it naive to think that could have been a moment too and moments like this are ones where you want to at least pause Mm. and take some time as you think about how do we respond to this yeah absolutely i do remember the kind of atmosphere at the time and even the atmosphere a few years later when i arrived in the u.s and i remember one of my professors at the University of Michigan, one of the chairs of my dissertation committee, is very anti-war, very liberal, but he was teaching at New York University at the time. Of, you know, when the, the planes hit, his kids were a few blocks from the World Trade Center. And I remember him telling me if a troop carrier had shown up in the Hudson River that day, he would have got on board, yeah. uh, you know, no matter, no matter who they were going to fight. These should be times for reflection, but realistically, they are never going to be. And people have often asked, what would the response have been if Al Gore had won that election, had got those extra 534 votes? And the answer is there might not have been an Iraq war, but there certainly would have been an Afghanistan war. And as we look at the US withdrawal now, it is easy to say in retrospect, this war was a mistake and this war was unwinnable. But the authorization for the use of military force in Congress in 2001 for Afghanistan 
had only one vote in both houses of Congress. So in more than 500 votes, only one vote was against. Right. That was the extent of uh, of opposition to the beginning of the Afghanistan war. I mean, there were people sort of on the fringes of American politics who were against it, but it was very much the consensus position. And I think it's also important to remember that that was widely supported throughout the rest of the world. Mm. Countries that wanted nothing to do with the Iraq war nonetheless supported the Afghanistan war. And even as we're seeing the withdrawal now, some of the coalition partners who stuck to the end, like Canada and Scandinavian countries, these are countries that stayed well away from the Iraq war but supported the Afghanistan war. I wonder if you could comment on the kind of heightened religious language at the time, which had this sort of clash of cultures feel Mm. about it, and whether or not you think religion was recruited or perhaps exploited to support this endeavour. Yeah, I would say certainly there was a sense of us and them in relation to Islam. And I wouldn't say that this was Christianity versus Islam because there were a lot of very secular Americans whose view was that Islam is just too religious. You know, Christianity is under control in the West. It's in its correct place uh, with the separation of church and state. It's a private belief that people have. But Islam, there's no boundary. Islam dominates politics in majority Muslim countries. So it wasn't so much religion versus religion. It was more that both deeply religious and deeply secular Americans thought that there was just something fundamentally wrong uh, with the Islamic world. That us and them attitude towards Islam persisted for a long time after 9-11, and it still persists. Even though Donald Trump was the first Republican candidate to really be openly opposed to what have become known as the forever wars, you know, which is a big thing that he was basically repudiating Bush in the Republican Party. Nonetheless, he really accelerated anti-Islamic feeling to new levels, you know, saying that initially in 2015, he wanted to ban immigration from Muslim countries, saying that this was bringing in terrorists. So even as public feeling about those wars changed, the feeling of us against them in regard to Islam still continues to persist. It's not as bipartisan as it used to be. Can you imagine a situation where American Christianity as a civic religion could ever be used to foster efforts towards peace rather than war? Look, I think it could, and I think that there are a lot of people in a lot of different parts of American Christianity who would like that. I look at the current split in the Southern Baptist Convention. I mean, it's not an open fissure yet, but there's a clear political conflict going on there between the real sort of Trumpist group that frankly thinks the Southern Baptist Convention should be a far-right arm of the Republican Party dedicated to war of all kinds, cultural warfare, military warfare against enemies, and what fortunately what prevailed within the Southern Baptist Convention, the more traditionally conservative majority that wants the gospel to be the focus. And I look at figures who used to be the sort of mainstream of evangelical Christianity in the US, figures like Rick Warren, uh, even going back, figures like Billy Graham. They were conservative, but there was always actually an emphasis on bipartisanship, on the importance of working with both sides and of not further 
exacerbating the divisions in American society. Unfortunately, especially with Trump, though, a lot of conservative Christianity went in that hyper-politicized direction. And I think one of the things that's notable about the more traditional American conservatives is that by the time that, say, Obama was elected, their outlook on the world was very internationalist. They wanted to get away from the really divisive domestic issues. They wanted to focus on things like being more humane towards immigrants and especially towards refugees. So if you even just go back to something like Obama's inauguration where Rick Warren spoke, I believe that the seeds of hope were there for that much more sort of traditional evangelical Christianity actually being much more of a unifying force and being able to sort of coalesce around issues which liberals could agree with conservatives about. I'm not sure how easy it's going to be to get back to that, unfortunately. That was David Smith of the US Study Centre with a really sober assessment of the role that Christianity could have played in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks. Now, Simon, you asked David about the possibility of the pause before responding, I guess a moment of self-reflection, and he was really frank about the inevitability of a military response to the events. He noted, after all, that there was bipartisan and international support for the strike on Afghanistan. Yes, and, and that felt realistic to me. You can imagine that in a really charged atmosphere like that. It's hard not to respond in a way that calls for war which is exactly what President Bush did. But I have to admit, when we were first talking about this episode, I did remember an interview we did with Stanley Halvas, who's a Christian theologian and ethicist from the US, who has a really interesting take on this. We should have responded to George Bush's, we are at war, with, oh no, we're not at war. That was murder. You don't go to war against murderers. You try to arrest them. Now. I understand that there's all kinds of very complicated considerations about who's going to be the police force, etc. But at least that's to get the issue in the right ballpark. I mean, George Bush's We Were at War was a pastoral moment. He understood the American people were in agony and they weren't sure what to do. So he gave us comfort because by saying we were at war, and we know war. And so we suddenly felt okay again. We knew what to do. We had to go find someone to kill. That was a very pastoral thing to do. It gave a sense of security, etc. If he had said, this is a moment that really challenges our presumption that we know where we are in the world, and it is going to take patience for us to know how to respond in a way that is discriminating, uh, that would have been a great response, and the Christian people could have said, we appreciate that, we can respond to that. Instead, you know, we said, oh yes, we're at war. That was Stanley Halvas, and it's important to note that here he's voicing his long-standing criticism of American Christianity. Uh, the fact that there's very little distinction, but should be, he says, between the American we and the Christian we. Yes, Halvas invokes the idea of the pause as well. And actually, this is why I posed that question to David Smith. I wanted to get his take on the possibility of that. 
Yeah, and you know, it's not just Halvar saying that in terms of trying to introduce some self-reflection. I do remember that Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, he wrote a little book after the attacks because he was near the World Trade Centre that day. And he spoke about something really similar, this idea of inserting what he calls a breathing space between suffering violence and then retaliating. And so it's like the breathing space is supposed to be this temporary pause, which is like an opportunity for reflection. And he writes in the book that hopefully this makes it less likely that we'll respond to violence with violence. Yes, and I can imagine people criticising this idea. Is it a bit unrealistic? Yeah, well, I mean, given that Williams was there that day, he himself talks about how he was choking literally on the dust of the collapsed towers. And so he acknowledges that it's very difficult to ask people to take a breath you know, in those kinds of circumstances. So I was really struck by that idea. And especially because in making it, he was drawing on a story in the Gospel of John, where a woman is caught in adultery, and she's dragged before Jesus to be condemned. And for that time, there's a real sense that there's been a clear breach of right and wrong and the crowd is fired up, right, with its moral righteousness. She should be punished. But it's really interesting because in the face of this, Jesus bends down and he kind of writes in the dust for a minute before saying, and these are famous lines, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone. And then the crowd, I guess, prompted into this moment of self-reflection, starts to melt away, which, you know, doesn't mean that everything's okay, that it's a live and let live, um, or that there isn't a proper time and a place to respond. But Williams just draws out this idea that the moment of hesitation, right, which is what he's elsewhere called the breathing space or making room, can actually offer the opportunity to respond very differently when you've been injured, when you've been wounded. I think this is really interesting and hopefully 20 years is enough time to have some reflection on this. It's clearly not what most people would think of as the basis of a policy response to these kinds of events, but it is certainly something worth thinking about when any of us go through traumatic events, like to try to build into our lives and our responses a kind of time to process, space to allow something life-giving to appear. I think that's what he's appealing to. A few months ago, I interviewed the artist Marco Fujimura, who lived right next door to Ground Zero, and he spoke very powerfully about this moment. You go through trauma and you're always discovering how deep the fractures go. Um, you know, I'm 20 years later, I'm still experiencing uh, headline fractures I didn't know that was there, you know, yeah. and they come out. and you know, I had to, you know, to go back to my loft three blocks away from where the tower stood. Um, my I had three children uh, who became ground zero children. Um, literally to go home was to face ground zero. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that has defined my um, certainly a decade of journeying through that trauma. And then, of course, 2020 pandemic comes. You know, after 2020, we're all survivors. Mm-hmm. Even if the pandemic is over, that trauma is going to linger. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have to know, especially our churches and our communities have to have awareness of these lingering effects of trauma. 
and uh, survivor's guilt. Everything that we, you know, I had to go through as a 9-11, you know, ground zero resident, uh, we're going to be going through as nations, as cultures. As the U.S. wraps up its time in Afghanistan, its longest ever war, those lingering effects of trauma confront all of us in a way. I asked David Smith whether the return of the Taliban to power in Afghanistan made him dubious about efforts to form other nations in the image of the West. It's unfortunate that it took a 20-year war to learn that that kind of externally imposed nation building just doesn't work. It was very clear from the way that the Afghan military and government evaporated that the US had created no permanent structures in Afghanistan. Germany and Japan are often held up as examples of where it can work, but they were very different situations in terms of the structure of the economy and government and and society of those countries. Those were structures that the United States could build on. Most of the world doesn't have those ready-made structures of, of the world's most advanced industrial powers. And so I would hope that that lesson has been learnt. In terms of change in general. I mean, the Taliban certainly claims that it has changed. We'll have to wait and see whether that's true or not. I do think there is something to the fact that that it's a very different world now. Like when the Taliban first took over in 1996, they banned the internet, which was virtually non-existent in Afghanistan then anyway, whereas now they're very internet savvy, media savvy. Back then they wanted to be completely cut off from the rest of the world. Now they want to be a member of the international community. So there might be diplomatic carrots available where military sticks have failed. Um, But certainly, yeah, externally imposed change doesn't seem to be something that's really possible. You've been listening to Life and Faith from CPX with me, Simon Smart and Justine Toe. Special thanks today to David Smith from the US Studies Centre at Sydney University and also to Mark McLennan for giving his very personal take on this episode. We'll also post a link to Rowan Williams' book, Writing in the Dust, Reflections on 11th September, if you want to check it out. Meanwhile, if you've found this episode thoughtful or interesting, please do send it on to a friend who you think might also get something from it. And please leave us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. It's a way for us to know you're out there listening. And speaking personally, I love reading every single review we get. Next week. J.K. Rowling's contribution to our future well-being is extraordinary. When you think we're in the age of social media and video and she's got eight-year-olds to read 800-page books in difficult prose. I mean, it's not easy kids' prose at all.